0: Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Trent Collars podcast. My guest today was Dr. Gary Chartier. He's a distinguished professor and associate dean at La Sierra University, author and editor, co-author, co-editor of 17 books, multiple degrees, including a PhD from Cambridge University. We had a great talk. It was really fascinating. I learned a lot. Um, unfortunately, I recorded this during a thunderstorm, so the internet's a little sketchy. I know I've had some problems with the Wi-Fi in the past, and I'm going to work on getting that fixed for y'all, but I am not a technological guru um so this is a journey for me as much as it is for anyone else so hopefully you guys enjoy what was captured and uh thanks for listening check it out we're live dr chartier thank you so much for uh second time to join me today pleasure to be here Trent. would you like to introduce yourself to the listeners uh sure i'm gary chartier uh i teach at la sierra
1: university in riverside california where i'm also the associate dean of the Tom and Visa School of Business. Um, I write books and articles about a variety of arcane topics, including law and ethics and anarchy.
0: Absolutely. So, would you classify yourself as a left libertarian or as an anarchist? Oh, oh both. Both.
1: Uh, most left libertarians I know with maybe one exception uh, are anarchists uh so uh,
0: yeah i'm those are both descriptions i'm uh, comfortable with absolutely and would you say that on the left when people fall under anarchism it's more anarcho-communism anarcho-syndicalism so
1: terms terms are always uh, confusing and uh, we can find ourselves uh, distracted by uh, arguments about how best to use them so um left market anarchism uh of the sort that uh, that i'd want to endorse obviously uh isn't in any straightforward sense syndicalist and certainly isn't communist um there are uh, obviously of uh, anarchism on the left that are uh, skeptical about markets, uh, either large-scale markets or all markets. Um, and uh, as will be clear from, you know, kind of the way I've tried to spell out my own uh, left libertarian and left market anarchist views, those, uh, those would not be... Uh, uh, positions that I'd want to endorse. I certainly understand, uh, you know, the the uh, uh, factors that might uh, dispose somebody to accept those. But uh, uh, my own position is one that uh, sees markets as uh, as integral to uh, to human flourishing.
0: Absolutely. So, what do you think the difference is between yourself and your view on the markets, and say, like the Ron Paul type libertarians? Is it regulation within the market, not completely free markets?
1: So, um, look, I uh, I think that, um, as you say, Ron Paul type libertarians um, are, are going to represent a pretty broad uh, swath of, of views. Uh, it certainly seems to me that uh, and I look and I'm not here to beat up on them or anybody else. Um, I want to define my view not as a as something that uh is necessarily uh, different to or opposed to uh somebody else's. I don't want to speak for somebody else and say this is really what that person thinks. Um I think there are a lot of very radical libertarians uh, who either came to libertarianism through uh, the Ron Paul movement or who certainly have been attached to that movement. I am absolutely not here to uh, to beat up on them. Uh, when I talk about a uh, uh, left version of market anarchism, the most important thing I wanna emphasize is the absence of any, certainly are people in many different places along the uh, sort of spectrum of libertarians uh, who would agree about that, whether they would uh, think about its implications in the same way or frame it in the same way uh, is a different matter, but uh, I certainly think that a lot of libertarians can recognize uh, and do recognize the really distorting and destructive consequence of state secured privilege
0: in the market. Absolutely. I apologize. You broke up there for a second. I only, I probably heard about 40% of what you said. Um, absolutely. And I wasn't trying to set you up to uh, slam dunk on anyone else or anything. I have a genuine interest in everyone's philosophy on politics. Um, and I want to expand my own thoughts and ideals. So that's why I ask. And then also the more we know about each other, the more that we can bridge the gap between us and come together because anyone who believes in decentralization needs to be working together at this point. Like the the small minute differences are nothing compared to the vast power that the state has over us now. So that was one of my goals, especially reaching out to you. Um, and different thinkers and stuff was to educate myself that way when i talk to people in my own life i can try to make that connection with them um and try to just bring them under the umbrella of of decentralization no matter what it is whether they're anarcho-communists and they want to go live on a farm and be hippies or ancaps whatever the case is you know we all need to be fighting together at this point against the powers of the state
1: Uh, i think that the more we coalitions around shared commitments, uh, the better. Certainly, I absolutely am not interested in uh, banishing anybody uh, uh, from the fold. Obviously, there are going to be disagreements and sometimes serious ones about particular issues. And I don't think we should at all conceal those, but where we can uh, agree and coalesce, I absolutely think we should do
0: that. Absolutely. Would you say one of the bigger uh, divides between, I guess, right and left libertarianism would be um, corporations, the way that we view corporations. Because I see a lot of people on, say, like the quote-unquote right libertarianism, where the state is very demonized, but there seems like there's kind of an underlying trust uh, in the free market to regulate these corporations and stuff like that. And I have absolutely no trust for them as well. And I think that we've seen plenty of evidence to back that up. That you shouldn't trust any of these massive corporations because they're just as involved with the oppression of the people as the state is. If you look at the Davos Forum, World Economic Forum, people like Klaus Schwab and BlackRock and stuff, you know, they're just as just as evil, in my opinion. So, you know, it seems to me that right now it
1: would be really unrealistic to treat really large, influential corporations as distinct from the state, right? I mean, so I don't mean that they're in any kind of narrow sense arms of the state, but I mean that the people who are the major players in those organizations are politically influential and certainly are frequently in search of state-secured privilege. Uh, Somebody might obviously be able to point out some interesting uh, exceptions to that generalization, and I admit immediately that it is a generalization, but I do think it's extraordinarily tempting when you can influence state power to seek to get privileges from the state, and I think we certainly see that with uh, Large corporations. And then, of course, the reverse also happens, that the influence of these corporations makes state actors want to uh, influence them uh, as well. And uh, so I think there is a very intimate relationship between uh, the large influential corporation on the one hand and the state apparatus on the other. And uh, I think we should certainly not at all think of the modern uh, large corporation in today's uh, economic environment, as uh, you know, America's persecuted minority—to use that that phrase uh, that uh, Ayn Rand employed—I I don't buy that at all. So, you know, that's a different question, of course, from talk about the corporate form in the abstract. Though uh, it does seem to me, even there, that libertarians ought to have problems with uh, some aspects of that form, in particular with um the uh idea that you can just straightforwardly limit liability in tort by uh creating uh, by creating a corporation. Uh, certainly, I think it's it's easy to see why you'd limit uh you could limit liability in contract. you know, a corporation is, as has famously been said a nexus of contracts and uh you know, you could certainly contract into uh, various limits on liability there, but I'm nervous about the way in which the corporation uh, is insulated uh, sometimes, uh, not always, but frequently against tort liability just in virtue of being being a corporation, uh, which the uh, that is the degree to which, uh, you know, investors and managers can be limited in that way. So uh, when we talk about the corporation, then I think we should talk on the one hand about the contemporary large political Influential corporation and its relationship dragged about what might happen in a fully free society. Uh, Again, uh, we, uh, there's no reason to kind of rule out the corporate form just as such, but I think we should be suspicious about the extension of limited liability and tort to such an organization. So that's, those would be roughly the things I'd want to say about the, about the corporation.
0: Absolutely. So in the form you're talking about, How would you regulate or prevent the establishment of monopolies? Would that be through holding the individuals at the highest levels of these corporations accountable if they started um, conducting business that was not in the best interest of say like public law or something like that? Or would you use a minarchist style state to try to keep those powers in line?
1: Yeah, so I mean, uh, my views about uh, uh, about monopoly, I think, are largely uh, those of uh, of Austrians uh, in this regard. That is, I think, the um, uh, that monopoly powers come from and are state secured privileges and indeed we look at the history of language about monopolies uh what we're talking about are precisely those uh, situations in which you know a charter or a similar basis for um uh, offering special privileges is created by a king or a legislature and uh, it seems to me that in the absence of uh, those kinds of privileges uh you don't uh, just as a matter of, of principle, have a monopoly. A monopoly that is, has the ability to forcibly exclude competitors. Uh, monopoly doesn't happen when you successfully outcompete. Uh, others, a monopoly happens when you can use the force of law to keep them from competing with you. Uh, and I think as long as the uh, market is genuinely open, as long as people can enter that market, uh, you don't, as a matter of course, have anything you might talk about as a monopoly. Uh, now, uh, you know, even somebody like Mises will recognize that you know maybe there are there are some some very weird exceptions there that uh, perhaps in the abstract we could talk about, but as a general matter, my interest is in eliminating those privileges that exclude entrance into into markets and therefore uh, make uh, the uh, uh, make the market riven by cartelizing uh, privileges. Um, I think that's the that's the main concern we ought to have when we look at the you know the bad behavior of many large uh, organizations that we might think of as monopolistic. It's it's easy often to see their connections with state secret privilege. And so, for instance, a lot of the um, Uh, capacities for bad behavior that we notice on the part of uh, you know large uh, information technology firms are probably unimaginable in the absence of intellectual property rules and uh, so i I think what we want to do is get rid of those uh, those privileges rather than trying to find Mm -hmm. some excuse to give uh, uh, states uh, new uh, powers to, to regulate monopolies, because I think what we see, if we look at the work of historians like uh, Gabriel Calco on the one hand, or uh, Butler Schaefer on the other, uh, or even the work uh, of um, uh, the late Robert Bork in uh, his uh, uh, early uh, stage, stages as a uh, uh, legal commentator, uh, what we see, I think, is that uh, the practical effect uh, very often of doing this is to give existing dominant players excuses to suppress uh, their uh, smaller uh, upstart uh, competitors. Uh, and so, if we look at again at Calco's The Triumph of Conservatism or uh, Schaefer's follow on book in Restraint of Trade, uh, what we see is that uh, the rhetoric of protecting the public is often employed by uh the especially well connected uh business uh to suppress its competitors supposedly to prevent instability in the market or something like that but in fact really just
0: to keep itself insulated against competitive pressure absolutely Mm -hmm. and that's what regulations are in my opinion is the Mm -hmm. state basically putting up a entry fee that unless you have backing from these major institutions, you're never going to be able to actually afford. So you can't even get into the game to play. So when people talk about setting up separate institutions or like the Americanized dream of go out and start a business and compete against them, you can't even do that because our market is so controlled that the, the cost of entry is just astronomical. And that's, in my opinion, like you were saying, the exact key to protecting these monopolies from the state in the current form that they are right now yeah these 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 barriers to entry are uh
1: very conveniently uh embraced by uh the entities that have already uh occupied the field and really don't want to see uh, competitors in place and uh you know i think we we see this in a in a variety of contexts but you know what's you know so think about the notion uh popularized by uh uh, and, and certainly named by the um, uh, economist George Stigler, uh, the notion of regulatory capture, right? So the notion of regulatory capture uh, is that if you think about uh, what are supposed to be public regulatory bodies, you um, who's gonna staff those bodies? Well, they're typically gonna be staffed by people who are selected on the view that, oh, they they really know the industry well. Well, who knows the industry well? The people who are associated with the major players in the industry typically. And so uh, the predictable effect then is that they're going to, is that the industries that are supposed to be uh, in one way or another constrained by these regulatory bodies turn out largely to serve the interests of the dominant players in those industries. Um,
0: I'm curious, uh, how do you see a way forward right now with the state of America? Do you think that you prescribe more to the nihilistic black pill side where the empire is going to collapse? Or do you stay optimistic about the avenues of power that the people have through democratic process to try to take the course of the country back?
1: yeah I, you know, it's an interesting question, and i'm I'm not a good prognosticator. No one should count on me to uh, uh, spell out what the course of the future might be. Um, certainly, my own view um, is that we really ought to be pluralists. We really ought to be looking for a variety of ways. To develop alternate social institutions, to support those institutions, to reshape public debate, if we can, uh, and if there's if there's some value in a given case to participating in existing institutions, uh, that's fine, right? I'm not, I don't have the view that somehow that's uh, you know an inherent uh, kind of acquisition of dirty hands or something like that. I, I don't think it has to be, uh, but I also think we should be hesitant. Uh, in imagining, you know, rather than imagining that uh, um, it's easy to stay principled if we get involved in uh, the, uh, the institutions of the state, right? So in the nature of the case, even if you manage, I think, implausibly, to say get uh, elected or appointed to a significant office what you're going to find uh, even if you're already a person of principle is that you're under first of all you the chances of your being able to influence others uh, who are often there to acquire and maintain power uh those chances are pretty low and you yourself are going to be subject to a tremendous amount of temptation uh via the pressure that's put on you by those who who want to see uh, you support their agenda right so i mean I mean, one thing, you know, we know one thing with, I think, uh, you know, a, a virtual certainty, and that is that the sorts of people who come to occupy positions of power are likely to be people who are good at getting and maintaining power. And that that means that they're uh, probably not the uh, the most reliable sources of uh, of good choices uh, for, for the rest of us. Um, but even when you're not in that group, even when you manage to, you know, somehow break in unexpectedly, um, you know, you will often be a voice crying in the wilderness, and you'll often be be pressured in one way or another to support uh, support bad policies. So, I'm I'm not at all. Again, opposed to trying uh, those sorts of avenues, uh, you know. So certainly, I think Ron Paul was a great voice uh, in opposition to war and empire in in Congress, and uh, you know, really managed to uh, to keep uh, voicing uh, those sorts of, uh, of principles for a long time. And I and I certainly respect that. Uh, indeed, since you mentioned Ron Paul, and since I, uh, uh, you know. Uh, have a a history there, I guess I should mention it, right, that I um, actually went on the Young Turks uh, TV show with Jank Iger a year ago. and activity, people on the left should take a lot more seriously. And uh, and I'm very happy to, to do that, not because Ron and I would agree about everything, but because I think that opposition to war and empire and uh, to state-secured privilege is something we ought to be cheering for. Um, but I think we also should note the degree to which uh, Ron really was a voice crying in the wilderness. And uh, you know it seems fairly clear, for instance, if we look at the way Rand Paul has behaved, that uh, Rand decided a long time ago he didn't want to be a voice crying in the wilderness but the end result has been that while he does sometimes uh, take on the you know the establishment and the warmongers and and so forth um, he's a much more muted voice than his father was and I think that tells us something often about what it takes to survive in
0: uh, you know in the world of electoral politics you know I agree I think parallel societies are definitely the move right now at the local and state level. I think that mm -hmm, that's what mm -hmm. people need to be moving for right now, especially at the local level with things like food, water and shelter, Mm -hmm, because that's mm going to be what you need if the supply chain start breaking down. And then at the state level, if you can get people into the state level to start fighting back against the federal government, then I think that's the the correct moves. Um, And I agree that. Most politicians are going to be corrupted once they get into positions of power and the entire system is corrupted. But I see benefit in it and the conversion of people, because you're never going to be able to bring people into the light or awaken them to the corruption of the state if we don't have any avenues of reaching them. You know, and most normal people aren't going to be on YouTube listening to conversations like this or any other commentator or podcaster or anything that's talking about anarchy or anti-statism and stuff. So when you can get people into positions of power, um, such as like Rand or Ron or on any of the mainstream media sources, you're going to have a lot more opportunity to awaken those people and bring them onto our side. Um, but yeah, the, the parallel societies, that's the move 100% setting up your own communities, setting up your own food and water sources, and actually caring for each other at a local level. Now, i think um you know
1: it's it's just worth worth underscoring um yeah, the value of creating alternate institutions that really can support and sustain uh, you know flourishing social life in the absence of the state uh you know the um, the wobblies uh, the international workers of the world who uh, were kind of anarcho-syndicalists you know famously talked about you know building a new society within the shell of the old and i think there's something you know something right about that about creating these alternatives that are there uh when the uh when the other uh institutions uh, the institutions of the state and those allied with it uh you know prove to be to be brittle um and i guess i also uh want to just note my agreement with you about the potential educational value of uh of electoral politics that there can be uh that can serve as a kind of platform uh that people can use to communicate with the public in a way that uh, perhaps they couldn't otherwise and i don't want to kind of overstate that uh, because I think it's very easy for uh, dissident voices of all kinds to be sidelined. And so even if uh, uh, they're uh, out there speaking, uh, it's not clear how much they're gonna be amplified by any of the uh, conventional media. But I, I, I
0: certainly understand that as, a, as an argument. It certainly is, is one that it makes sense to, to take seriously. Absolutely. And you've been in this game a long time. I saw interviews with you going back eight, 10, 12 years. Uh, Just talking about dissident voices getting out. How much have you seen the censorship just skyrocket since then, like compared to maybe 10 years ago? I feel like some of those voices were probably still getting suppressed. But I mean, today to just see it so blatantly, like what's your take on that?
1: Yeah. So uh, it makes me feel like an old guy when uh, you highlight the fact that I've been talking about this stuff for a while. Wise. You know, I as I I like to say, right, I mean, I I grew up um, like uh, a lot of, um, you know, a lot of libertarians in my generation uh i uh, i shared uh, some familiar characteristics i which is to say i you know i read science fiction i programmed computers i had goldwater goldwaterite parents and i was socially awkward uh and uh that uh you know i really kind of embraced uh, uh, libertarian views and undoubtedly started talking about them uh when i was a teen And then I got sidetrown, a a kind of uninteresting, you know, statist uh, rabbit hole. And then, as I like to say, uh, George W. Bush and Barack Obama brought me back to anarchism uh, because, in fact, their their behavior uh, in different ways uh, was so... uh, uh, so troubling that uh, they, they even though on the surface, they appeared to be uh, to be very different people. Uh, it was so obvious, for instance, at the uh, uh, transition point when uh, the um, uh, you know the bailouts were being voted in Congress, and it was clear that, you know, both sides, uh, the sides represented by both of uh, those those uh, presidents, uh, were uh, were in favor in in the uh, congressional uh, vote totals. You could see. Um, the leaders of both parties supporting the bailouts and the dissidents in both parties opposing them, and that was a that was an eye-opening moment, I think, for anybody who paid attention there. And uh, yeah, so I mean, I just I I returned to anarchism, I returned to libertarianism in that period, um, and uh, yeah, I guess have been have been trying to think and talk about these uh, these issues uh, since then, um, as regards the suppression of dissenting voices. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot to say about that, but it but I will just say it is very disturbing indeed to me to see the, um, you know, the influential uh, social media platforms seeking to avoid, Uh, sharing um, dissenting views uh, of which they disapprove, or maybe in more practical terms, not so much. I mean, sometimes perhaps the disapproval is theirs. Sometimes it may well be uh, just uh, the disapproval they think that people in the state will exhibit, and so they're just trying preemptively to avoid getting hammered by uh, by politicians. But the practical effect is the same either way. It's you know I don't I don't have to figure out what you know Mark Zuckerberg's personal views are to know that uh, Facebook uh, is hesitant about allowing uh, various kinds of dissenting views to be expressed, and we see the same thing uh, obviously on uh, on other uh, social media platforms. And I really am profoundly disappointed there, right? So I mean, I, it just seems to me that, uh, you know, so I've, I've written a bit about freedom of expression and I think, um, you know, it's a rich and, and complex topic. I think there's of course a difference between talking about uh, freedom of speech vis-a-vis the government or any other entity that's using force to suppress speech and um, freedom of expression in a context in which force isn't employed. I think that's a bright line distinction that seems to be ought to be very important to libertarians. However, having made that distinction, uh, you know, so so that I'm not comfortable, I think, with those who don't see any difference between, you know, um, disallowing a certain uh, post uh, by a social media platform on the one hand and, uh, you know, jail time imposed by the government on the other, I think they're certainly different. But even where force is absent, uh, uh, we can, I think, should still be critical of activities, uh, right? So um, I think there's a kind of that I find frequently made by some sorts of libertarians takes roughly this form libertarianism is first and foremost a view about uh, restraints on the use of force and especially systemic force and therefore state state force um and so um, if we, uh, you know, once we can say that force and fraud are absent from a given situation, we have nothing else to say about it and it's perfectly okay. And I think that's just nonsense. It seems to me that we can recognize that there's a difference between force and other kinds of interference with uh, people's choices. And we can recognize that, um, force is, uh yeah force is different in it for a whole host of reasons but we can still i think engage in in normative criticism of attempts to suppress conversation to suppress the sharing of information for instance uh just like uh you know i can say that um you know ordinarily speaking no you know it's not the case that force is being misused when um you know uh, I cheat on my partner, but it doesn't follow that my partner can't reasonably criticize me for for you know for my my cheating, and I think the same thing is is true here. Uh, yeah, I can't uh, uh, put my uh, put my partner in jail for for cheating on me, but I can still or my partner can't do the same to me. But there's still I think uh, a reason for criticism there. Similarly. I, I don't think I you know want to use force to uh, change Facebook's behavior, but I can still say it's deeply problematic because there are reasons to care about free speech other than just caring about forcible interference. We should care about forcible interference, and that's one reason to be concerned about freedom of expression. But there's also just the value of unconstrained interchange, which really is how we discover and learn and experiment, uh, you know, as people and. Uh, Uh, when you irrationally interfere with that by saying we're only going to share establishment approved ideas, uh, I think we're all
0: all poor for that. Yes, I firmly believe in open dialogues without any hindrance. And when I see them using, say, like race as the tool to suppress these voices, it really doesn't make sense to me because I feel like You should want these people that think this certain way say neo-nazis out in the open and in the public so you can say all right i can look at you i can see your views and now i know where you stand so i don't have to guess there and then also you can engage them in dialogue to try to pull them onto your side like say daryl davis the guy who converted 200 kkk members away from that sort of lifestyle but when you suppress it It just creates an echo chamber for them to sit in and then they never see any other views on that and they just feed off of each other and then it also puts them into hiding so as a society you don't know who any of these people are whereas if the speech is free and open you can clearly identify these people because they're going to be outright with their views and then perhaps you can change their mind perhaps not but then there's there's no facade there there's no mask everyone's out in the open or more out in the open if they're publicly speaking their opinion
1: yeah, I no, I think that's a really good point that that, you know, one reason to favor uh freedom to express even even views that I find profoundly mistaken, uh is precisely that allowing for that invites people into a conversation and allows you to to, to identify them and respond to them uh and so forth. And I think the Daryl Davis story is is particularly striking there that you know you you really can engage with people in ways that um open up new possibilities for dialogue and discovery. Um you know, whereas I think there's a profoundly kind of fear-driven attitude, I think, on the part of uh, many uh, of those who want to stop open exchange. They somehow think that um, the truth is... We're really, really fragile, and that any expression of, of dubious ideas is immediately going to obscure the truth. That, the, that bad ideas will always win out. Well, I think given given opportunity and given a genuinely open uh, ecosystem of expression, truth will win out. And
0: uh, and I think that's a that's a wager that we need to we need to keep making. Yes, absolutely. And I think we're seeing it. You're seeing the rise of independent journalism like never before. So people are out there seeking out this information. Um, you just hinted on it. My next question was going to be how you saw. So you said you had went on the Young Turks, like people in camps like that, uh, how they view what's going on in the United States. Because even when I try to look up uh, and interact with different people and stuff like that, it's really hard to kind of break into some of these bubbles and get their realistic perspectives on on what's happening um, because they censor themselves as much as they want to censor other people, you know? So I was just curious in in the, the interactions you've had with organizations like that or people that kind of fall under those camps, are they expressing views similar to this or did they take the hard stance that this actually, like censorship, for example, does need to happen because words are violence or, you know, the truth can hurt people? And they're there for the good of yeah. man, not for truth or virtue or anything like that. I think it of course is a profound
1: mistake to separate out truth and virtue and what's good for people. I and mean, I think those are all intimately interrelated. And uh yes, sir. uh certainly we can't. Uh, determine what's good for people, nor can we persuade people to embrace uh, virtue or embrace what's good for them in the absence of uh, of truth and uh, and open dialogue. I don't, you know, when I uh, went on the Cenk Iger show, um, this would have been you know, roughly, you know, almost 10 years ago. And I think some of the issues that uh, you were just reflecting on uh, may not have been at the forefront of public debate then. Um You know, I think, I think there's a lot of variety and you, you do really encounter people uh, from a variety of kind of establishment-friendly perspectives, who absolutely are threatened by by uh, open by open debate and open dialogue. Um, I certainly don't think that that's that they're limited to uh, one sort of establishment-friendly position, right? So I mean, uh, and I suppose Jack Eiger would have thought me part of the establishment, really. But uh, I guess I'm I find uh, the Young Turks probably more. More establishment-friendly now than it used to be, um, but in any case, it seems to me uh, we really do have um, a, a generalized attitude on the. It's 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 really, I guess I would say, association with the establishment more than it is. Falling on, you know, as it were, the left or the right wing of the establishment that's really decisive here. What matters is that there's the assumption that the sorts of views that are shared. Uh, in Georgetown cocktail parties and on the editorial pages, of the New York Times, obviously right, and that uh, people who don't embrace those views are just foolish and really for their own good need to be, uh, you know, need to be, uh, uh, you know, re-educated. I think it's that sort of establishmentarian view that, that's much more troubling uh, to me than, uh, uh, you know, where people fall exactly on the on that establishmentarian spectrum. What I think is troubling is is just embracing that general idea that there's a very narrow range of opinion uh, that's acceptable uh, in public debate. Everybody agrees. Uh, that uh, you know wars are good, everybody agrees that uh, you know bailouts are good, and so forth. And so as long as you accept those views and you're part of the uh, establishment consensus, uh, it can seem really obvious that other people who don't agree are foolish and uh, really uh, uh, not worth taking seriously. And I guess I guess what I would hope is that those of us who want to see, A freer and more peaceful society, indeed a freer and more peaceful world, will be able to help people look beyond that very narrow range of of positions.
0: Yes, the left and right spectrum, I think, is an obsolete way of thinking. I think that you are right that it's establishment versus anti-establishment at this point, and it really doesn't matter where you fall on the left or right political spectrum. Nowadays, it's whether you're gonna support freedom and sovereignty uh, and even maybe collectivism on a small scale versus establishment and statism. Um, I think that that should be what now takes the form of the left and right argument in America today.
1: You know, so, uh, you know, I think,
0: um,
1: as we know, uh, right? I mean, you can find uh, uh, people in the uh, you know the history of American libertarianism, uh, you know, like Karl Hess, say, uh, you know, talking about the importance of uh, a spectrum that runs from you know authoritarian to anti-authoritarian, and really sees that as the most uh, as the most important uh, uh, way of thinking about political differences. Um, and I think it's it is hugely important and that's what I wanted to underscore when certainly when talking about that uh, uh, establishmentarian view very often. Um, some time ago, I uh, uh, helped put together a uh, a political quiz, uh, for the Center for a Stainless Society that's actually got five dimensions. Because I think when we talk about a range of issues, uh, there's a whole host of different uh, uh, axes that we might be measured on. And so I do think uh, that uh, kind of statist, anti-statist or authoritarian, anti-authoritarian axis is hugely important, probably are other things we also wanna talk about. I wouldn't wanna exclude uh, consideration of those. So, I mean, I'm, I really do strongly favor um you know cross ideological coalitions uh in opposition to state power on the other hand i am certainly very much aware that there are people in a variety of places on the ideological spectrum uh who imagine the state is really just getting in the way of their own implementation of very dodgy uh, very dodgy preferences and i certainly don't want to i don't want to support that um you know so uh, yeah i, I want to be careful about suggesting that i think um you know the state is the only enemy because i don't think that's right i think there are various things that we ought to be critical of various positions we ought not to endorse um even as we also recognize that the state is, uh, you know, the, the enemy of all, of all peaceful people. Uh, unfortunately, you know, things do get more complicated than that. I don't wanna suggest any kind of unipolar, not unipolar, but kind of single variable account of anything, uh, things are always
0: complicated. So I guess that's the only kind of uh, uh, thing I wanna throw into the mix there right now. Yes, sir. Yeah, and like we were talking about earlier, I mean, these massive corporations, massive banking systems, and stuff—you know—they're just as just as powerful as the state is, if not more powerful. Uh, and you're seeing that play out right now with what happened with Russia, when Swiss banks decided to take a side. Like that's that's huge. That's a huge move on the geopolitical scale. Um, so yeah, to think that the states the. The only source of power that's controlling your life uh, is, I agree, is very unipolar way of looking at it because there's massive institutions that are just as powerful and they need to be getting just as much skepticism as as we give the state. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me, um,
1: you know, we can't so just try to a couple of things so first of all again i think uh you know we think about big organizations of various kinds um you know it's just i think impossible to talk about them in abstraction from the state right it's not as if they exist in some state free environment uh that uh uh, corporate, uh, you know, hierarchs on the one hand and uh, and state, uh, uh, you know, power holders, uh, people in, in significant elective and appointive offices, all of these folks are part of, uh, I think, the same interlocking world and they uh, uh, can serve to support uh, each other in various ways. Um, my uh, Uh, wonderfully insightful friend Roderick Long likes to talk about uh, the relationship between church and state in Europe in the Middle Ages with the idea that, um, you know, on the one hand, we can certainly see state functionaries um, tussling with uh church functionaries over uh, uh particular issues of uh, the power that uh, each wants to have on the other hand uh those state functionaries and uh church functionaries really at the same time uh for people who aren't uh powerful in either institution uh those uh, church and state institutions really uh, uh kind of work together as a ruling class that that sticks it to ordinary people in the in the Middle Ages, and so we can recognize distinctions between them on the one hand, while also recognizing that they they have a power that uh, that we should be we should be very concerned about. So I think that's that's definitely a thing to uh, to be very sensitive to. The other thing that is just a kind of um, spanner to throw in the works here, uh, and this requires a little kind of nuanced development. But uh, I don't know if you're acquainted with the uh, political theorist Jacob Levy uh, at uh, McGill University. Um, But uh, Jacob has, um, he's written about a variety of things. Um, But uh, he he wrote a very important book uh, that came out in, oh, 20, 1516, something like that. Uh, I hope I'm not misstating that. Um, In which he talked about, uh, so he's looking, I think, especially at the history of the development of kind of liberal ideas and institutions in France, not only there, but he pays a lot of attention to this. And he emphasizes the way in which so Jacob would say the following, and I and I want to make clear how I disagree with him, and I've disagreed with him about this in print. Uh, but his basic thesis is: uh, if we look at the history of uh, of institutions here, we see that it is sometimes smaller institutions that oppress people uh and sometimes it's larger more inclusive institutions that oppress people and i think his his own view i take it is that ultimately um, the only thing that ends up protecting us is the ongoing tension between these two institutions that perhaps, t- kinds of institutions that really keeps them both from, uh, from exercising too much power. Um, now, I think maybe things look different once we opt out of a state framework entirely. So I mean, I think what, what he's envisioning here, Uh, You know, Jacob is, broadly speaking, a kind of classical liberal, and he's looking at the historical development of classical liberalism and uh, imagining institutions that have, you know, that either are states or have some of the kinds of powers that states have, and the idea is just that, you know, there can be local tyrannies that are opposed at the national level, national tyrannies that are opposed at the local level. uh, you know my own hope is that over the long haul if we can delegitimize the idea of forcible non-consensual rule at all levels uh right uh, then um, while there can still be tensions among different institutions uh perhaps some of the problems that jacob's concerned about won't won't be uh, ones that we need to be uh, as as focused on but i guess i'm mentioning what he's saying just to emphasize that while as a general matter i agree strongly that decentralization is a great thing i think jacobs encouraged us all to take a second look at the way in which you know tyranny sometimes develops a on a small scale at the local level. And we don't wanna to be too sanguine about uh, what anybody with power is likely is likely to do. We ought to be vigilant, I think, in all, in all cases there and recognize the way in which institutions at different levels can play off against each other. And sometimes it's precisely that tension that may keep us from being at least as tyrannized as we otherwise would be.
0: Yes, I heard Dr. Jordan Peterson describe this not too long ago. Um, The battle between, he put it as left and the right, but basically you have to have that opposition pushing so you can find that nice balance. And I think that that's what he was getting at as well, is that you need these two opposing forces to kind of clash with each other and eventually we'll reach a point of equilibrium where hopefully it's peaceful and we can continue to live our lives and everyone can prosper. But certainly the smaller institutions and individuals themselves, there are people out there that crave for power. Um, in whatever form they can get it, whether it's through the state or, like cult leaders, for example, you know people that that yeah. prey on weaker people and take control of them, and it's just an unadulterated just lust for power and the fuel of their own ego. So yes, staying vigilant in all forms is absolutely n- necessary. So yeah, I think uh, I think the cult leader example is actually a, is a really good
1: one. Um, yeah, uh, I think I uh, think we can definitely see uh, the use of charisma and uh, kind of weaving myths to capture people's imaginations and so forth as uh, as uh, you know really problematic. And it's it's not necessarily the case that you want to then uh, think of uh, an institution like uh, one that does those things as uh, necessarily to be opposed. You know by force but it certainly ought to be opposed and uh, uh, we want to try to to free people's
0: minds and their uh, their imaginations uh, from that kind of uh, that kind of oppression you have direct involvement with universities interaction with the students and stuff like that how do you see the the thought processes of the younger generation say going through your university right now do you think that there's a a bigger emphasis on say individual sovereignty and like critical thinking and stuff or do you think that more of them kind of fall into just absorbing knowledge and whether for good or bad taking that on board and then parroting those points because it gets a lot of hate like there's a lot of a lot of people put put pressure on the institutions as a source for um like cultural division and stuff like that and quote unquote what they think is um not good for culture. Uh I think that there's good and bad things that go on there. Um but since you just have direct involvement in it, I was wondering what your take on that is.
1: Well, I think you you flatter me uh by supposing I I can generalize. Um, you know, I probably uh spend more time um solving bureaucratic problems as a <laughs> as an administrator or engaging in research or engaging in in my own research than I do necessarily in in uh, the kinds of interactions that would really help me to answer that question well. Yes, I, mean, I think uh, you know. I think you know. I uh, I have a lot of uh, a lot of great students, and uh, I think they're asking questions about where their lives are headed and about the kind of uh, institutional environments in which they're functioning. Um, and I certainly have no desire to to see anybody uh, uh, kind of uh, kind of beat up on them. Uh, but if you ask me where they're headed and where uh, uh, their uh, ascendancy over the next few years will mean that our, our society's going, um, I just don't think I
0: know. Yeah. I don't either. I don't think uh, there's very few people who would even have an idea to, but I figured I'd ask. <laughs> sure. Yes, sir. we'll we'll close up. Uh, Thank you so much for your time. Uh, If anyone else wants to hear your words or read your books, where can they find you at? Well, probably the simplest thing is
1: to, uh, you can uh, check out my uh, my website, which is garychartier.net.
0: That's G-A-R-Y-C-H-A-R-T-I-E-R.net. Awesome. Dr. Chartier, ladies and gentlemen.